Yeah. All right. Then the next one that we talked about last time was uh, those little mice that don't want to run very fast because of. <laughs> oh, rodenticide. So, you know, this is kind of interesting because normally from a toxicologist perspective, when we talk about cats, we always kind of sigh a little bit because cats seem to be so sensitive to all sorts of things. But there's certain types of rodenticides where this is where cats really shine. They are very resistant, much more resistant than some of the D words out there. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, and now, this is the you, Per Podcast. You really didn't even finish saying three. You just like went three, two, one, hello. And, yes, and so that will be very difficult for our podcast uh, mechanic. Uh, yes. Our editor, Ben, yes, uh, our favorite ben. editor, he did a wonderful job. Thank you, Ben, for doing this every week for us. It will and be very sorry. tough to find that cut. <laughs> yes, we'll have to apologize right now to Ben. He's going to have editing yes. trouble. But you also didn't even leave me room to get in there. So I'm Dr. Susan Little, and this is the Per Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Susan. <laughs> and this is the second week of our amazing interview with Dr. Anna Brutlack. Uh, from uh, the Poison Center. And we promised you last week that we will be talking about some specific things. And because Dr. Susan threw in grapes at the last moment, just in time, we'll start with the grape thing after we say, hello, Anna, how are you? Well, hello, I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it, it, we're so excited because we got so, so many uh, great responses after last week's. Uh, that uh, we're excited to talk to you again. And, and, you know, we were all complaining that there was not enough time in a day to talk about all these things. So, uh, so what about grapes and what's the new news? Well, so there is some new news. So the ASPCA Animal Poison Control Center sent a letter to JAVMA saying that they have a hypothesis that something called tartaric acid, which is found in cream of tartar and some in grapes and raisins, may be a component in, or may be one of the reasons or the reason that we see acute renal damage in dogs. So D word there, we do not, question has been asked over and over again, what about cats and grapes and raisins? And, you know, we have looked at our data and we have not been able to find anything that substantiates that cats are really at risk. And uh, I know anecdotal, N of one, right? I was out, my, someone was taking care of my own cats, uh, house sitting, granted pre-COVID when we could still do these things. She had left uh, oatmeal raisin cookies on the counter and I got a frantic call around midnight from the cat sitter saying, I am so sorry, your cat just ate three of my <laughs> oatmeal raisin cookies. Well, thankfully nothing happened. And this is a cat that would eat anything anyways. So he probably wasn't the first time he'd gotten into stuff like that. But mm. so the good news is for cats, we really don't worry too much mm. about this. Now on dogs, yes, this is new information. And I think there's a lot that will be discovered. It's a fantastic hypothesis. Let's tee it up. Let's do some 
uh, investigation, see if what else we can learn about this, because it would be great if we could really identify what the cause of this, of grapes and raisins, and or any, of grapes and raisin poisoning. Any guess on what the mechanism might be? It's uh, no, I don't. And you know what, Susan, I would, I still need to look into this a little bit more too, because it is really new and to try and figure out, yeah, you know, what exactly is going on here. Um, so <laughs> I can't wait to say in the next yeah. time that, Hey, now we have some ideas. But I think, I think if you know the cause, you can also look for the solution, I guess. It's right. like, I mean, you, you have a little bit more uh, directed ammunition to, I, I don't know, what tartaric acid does, but I can imagine that you can look for an antidote of tartaric acid, or you know, when you know it is a certain uh, when it is a certain uh, substance, there's things that you can do and things that you cannot do. And the one thing that I thought always was very confusing with toxicology: sometimes you make them vomit, and sometimes you definitely do not want to make them vomit. Right. Uh, so there, there are differences. And the more you know about the toxin itself, the better you can treat it. Absolutely. Yes. yes. 100% agree. Vomit? Yes or no? <laughs> yes. That so is what is start. the answer? What is the answer to? Because, you know, obviously you can make cats vomit. So when would you do it and when would you not? Well, there's some kind of hard and fast rules that I would think about. And number one is, yeah, what did they ingest? Because the things that are not safe to bring back up to induce vomiting with would be something that is potentially corrosive. So let's say it's a chemical, uh, it would cause chemical burns on the way down. You don't want to re-expose that tender, thin little esophagus to those same types of burns on the way back. So you wouldn't induce something, induce vomiting with something highly corrosive. You wouldn't necessarily induce vomiting if that animal got into a really thin hydrocarbon, like kerosene or gasoline, because if you vomit that back up, you're increasing the risk of aspiration. So now you have two problems, right? You have whatever, you know, the cat ingested this, you have the, uh, what, you know, the consequences of ingestion of gasoline, but now if you induce vomiting, you also have aspiration pneumonia to deal with. So those are kind of some basic examples. But then the other thing too is how long ago did the cat eat whatever it was it ate? So let's say the cat ate Effexor. We were talking about this last time. It's an antidepressant for humans and cats love these pills. We don't know why, but they do. And they will readily eat them. So let's say a cat ate the two pills at one o'clock and the pet owner doesn't come home until four o'clock and find the cat. Well, at that point, inducing vomiting would not be advised because that pills, those pills are well digested and metabolized at that point. So inducing vomiting, A, it has no benefit and B, inducing vomiting also always carries a little bit of a risk. Mm. So that, you know, again, that timing since ingestion is really important. Or what was the dose that the cat ate? Did it actually even eat a toxic dose? Just because something is kind of a quote unquote toxin, you know, there still could be a subtoxic exposure in which inducing vomiting wouldn't be needed or recommended. Right, right, yeah. So there's lots of lots of factors to to consider. So, so since exactly. you mentioned effects or what what do you do? So if you are worried, let's say that it is actually a toxic dose. What 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 then do you do? Yes. Well, the hardest part with cats is there is no safe at home emetic. So right. in dogs, we can sometimes give them hydrogen peroxide at home to make right. them vomit. 
but right. we do not want to give hydrogen peroxide to calf. Number one, it doesn't work very well. Number two, they seem much more sensitive to it than dogs. So what we've actually seen is you can see potentially fatality from giving peroxide to cats. They have developed a terrible gastritis. So if we think that cat ingested a toxic dose, those are kind of what we call a tuck and run. Tuck that animal under, the, under your arm and get to the ER, get to the, your veterinarian as fast as they can. So if we can get them to the clinic in time, then certainly we could induce vomiting. And in a cat, what I prefer to use our dexmedetomidine works very well uh, as far as, you know, and I say well with being square, square uh, scare coats that no one can see because there's no perfect feline emetic, right. but dexmedetomidine, uh, xylazine, if people still have that in their clinics, uh, hydromorphone has been, is somewhat yeah. effective too. Yeah. And so I'd have the veterinarian induce vomiting if there's enough time, you know, if the time window works, they could also give a dose of activated charcoal which can help to bind to the effector in the cat's gut and prevent more systemic absorption. And so those are your two decontamination strategies. And then it's symptomatic and supportive care. So these effector kitties, they can get very, they're a lot of stimulatory signs. So they might have their heart rate might be very high. Their pupils are big and dilated. They might have some cardiovascular or some neurologic stimulation. So potentially we can see agitation, twitching, tremors, worst case scenario, seizures, things of that nature. So oftentimes we're, we're sedating them. We're just helping them chill out, get through that period of time. And then hopefully if everything goes really well on the other end, we've had no harm done. Sounds like, is it a little bit like serotonin syndrome? Is there, is there a serotonin? Yes, yes, it, it can be. So effects yeah. are, is it's um, effectively what you do end up with is too much uh, of several neurotransmitters. So you see too much neuroepinephrine, too much epinephrine at the neurotransmitter sites, too much serotonin. So that is a part of it. It's uh, very akin to an amphetamine type of situation. So that's why we see the, all these stimulatory signs that we would see. So they're kind of tripping. Yeah, they kind of are. They kind of are. Yes. Wow. wow. Ah, that, yeah, that's, that, that's good to know. Um, fish oil. We talked mm. about that last time. So uh, cats, obviously, I can imagine that they're attracted to fish oil, especially the non-capsulated ones. But I can also think that they probably smell through the capsules, the fish oil too. So uh, why is that a danger for cats? Well, fish oil in and of itself isn't too dangerous. But what we really see, unless they eat a ton of it, and if they eat a lot of it, we'll see vomiting, we'll see diarrhea, like you would expect, even in a person, right? A lot of oil is going to cause some kind of a greasy gut. But one thing that we can see with fish oil capsules is sometimes you'll have fish oil that has a really high concentration of vitamin D. Right. And so it's actually then the vitamin D yeah. that I would worry about in those types of overdose cases. So if a cat were to ingest a lot, many capsules with vitamin D poisoning, what we can see is it actually causes hypercalcemia. So high calcium levels, hyperphosphatemia, high phosphorus levels, which then ultimately mineralizes or results in mineralization of various tissues. The kidneys are yeah. notable there. So the, the kidneys, the aorta, you can see some cardiac mineralization in the stomach and the lungs. And so again, it's, it goes back to the vitamin D that would be in those types of combo products. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing because if as a veterinarian, you want a cat to eat fish oil, because we sometimes use it as a dietary supplement, you can't get them to eat it for love nor money. 
<laughs> I'm telling you. So, you know, it's it, it's just so so funny, right? That it it can be a toxicity at the same time as in general, you can't get cats to eat fish oil for love nor money. So. Of course, of course. <laughs> I bet Anna's cat lost its fish oil. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. He has been a fan. Again, well, I guess not know, picky, but I guess there's some cats out there who are just fans, but man, it's not my patience. <laughs> and so the, the so when you get a cat that gets a lot of fish, so you, you you get this call of the 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 client or the veterinarian, what do you normally tell them to do? Well, if it was if it was a toxic dose, a true you know toxic dose from a vitamin D perspective, we would again we'd send them in. We'd try and decontaminate that gut as well as we could. So if we could still induce vomiting, if we give charcoal, there's something also called cholesteramine, which can help to bind to vitamin D in the gut. And then we're really kind of sitting back and we're watching. We're monitoring calcium and phosphorus levels very closely. If we know they got a massive dose, then I'm not gonna really necessarily wait to see if they become hypercalcemic. We'll put them on IV fluids. We might add in some furosemide to help them essentially pee out extra calcium or maybe even add a little bit of pred because again, that can encourage calciuresis. And then there are specific drugs like bisphosphonates. Right. So pomidronate, is something that then we would also add in to really help target, treat the hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia that we're gonna see. So the whole goal is to prevent tissue mineralization in a situation yeah. like that. that. That's a tricky situation to manage, pretty, pretty tricky. It yeah. is, vitamin D is tough and yeah. the half-life is quite long. Ugh. So these animals can remain hypercalcemic for oh, sometimes several weeks. And so it's a lot of, you know, sometimes in and out of the hospital, depending on how dehydrated they are, what their kidney function looks like. You, know, you try and manage them at home after a few days in the hospital as best you can, because no one wants to be in the hospital. You know, I don't want to be in the hospital and certainly cats don't want to be in the hospital. And, uh, but, so it can be a lot of back and forth. And unfortunately, it's, it can be expensive. Yeah. Those yeah. And is the half-life comparable between cats and the D word? And the D word. Yes, it can be. You know, they're both long. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. all right. Then the next one that we talked about last time was uh, those little mice that don't want to run very fast because of. <laughs> oh, rodenticides. So, you know, this is kind of interesting because normally from a toxicologist perspective, when we talk about cats, we always kind of sigh a little bit because cats seem to be so sensitive to all sorts of things. But there's certain types of rodenticides where this is where cats really shine. They are very resistant, much more resistant than some of the D words out there. So for example, the rodenticides that cause the long acting anticoagulant rodenticides. So these are the rodenticides that cause bleeding. Cats actually can tolerate pretty impressive doses of those types of rodenticides before we're gonna see bleeding. So it's really relatively uncommon. We would actually see a cat present with coagulopathy secondary to rodenticide intoxication. And so that's why you know, if we have a cat that goes out and catches a couple of mice that might have been, they're slow because they're, you know, half poisoned. Um, <laughs> I don't, oftentimes we don't worry about those cases too much. They do really well. Now the flip side, because there's always a flip side for cats, is that, <clears throat> excuse me, 
some of the other types of rodenticides, like one of the ones that's becoming more common right now, it's called bromethylene. Yes. And um, you may see it, you know, it's, it's in a lot of over-the-counter products. Bromethylene is a neurotoxicant and cats actually are quite sensitive to that. So, you know, it's uh, the way the market right now and EPA laws are going, we're seeing more bromethylene on the consumer market. So more cats are getting exposed. And so, yeah, that is unfortunate because they don't do as well. Mm. And uh, vitamin D is actually another really prominent rodenticide. And so again, like we just talked about, you know, cats can be susceptible to that. There's a little bit less data to say, you know, how, if a cat eats mice that were killed by vitamin D rodenticides, how effective are they going to be? It's possible. You'd probably still have to eat a fair number of, of dead mm. rodents or dying rodents, but uh, it is possible that they could get relay or secondary toxicity in that kind of situation. Right, right. Um, and isn't there's a, a I, I guess it's a rodenticide um, that people use for um, like uh, ground dwelling creatures, the, the groundhog. Oh. You know what I'm thinking of? Yes. Is it zinc phosphide? That's it. Probably, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, that can be particularly nasty and that's sort of an equal opportunist. It can be bad for all sorts of species. Yeah. Uh, including of course the groundhog. So um, yeah, so that zinc phosphide is typically, it's, it's comes in little pellets. It's typically buried underground for moles, gophers, exactly you know, right. just like what you're talking about. And um, so if a cat did ingest that directly, let's say it dug it up because it saw you in the backyard and you were digging a hole and you put something in the hole and cats being curious, you know, if they dug it up and ate that, that could be obviously a big problem. If they ate the rodent that died from zinc phosphide poisoning, much less likely to actually be a problem. So relay secondary toxicity with zinc phosphide, not too big of a concern. Okay. Very good. Uh, what about the, the, the plants outside of the lily? Yeah. Oh, okay. So you covered lilies. I've seen it on your website and I feel like, yes. So uh, yeah, we covered you. the lily and, uh, and I think we, we dug into the lily pretty much. The one thing that I thought is always an eye opener is that it's not only lily, even the water, you know, is toxic. Right. It's yes. crazy. Yeah. So it's yes. how toxic it is. And then I, I don't, I really don't understand. And that's the question that Susan, who is an expert on everything in the cat could not answer is why are cats so much sensitive than the dog? <laughs> Well, I really wish Susan could answer that because that would answer, that would make toxicologists everywhere very, very happy. I got no, we don't know. And this is, it's a, it's this age old question and we want to know desperately. So I wish I had a better answer for you, but you weren't missing anything there. But other plants that we see with kitties, you know, one of the kind of common toxic plants, and this is again toxic for a lot of species, are lily of the valley. And I think about that right now because it's spring and um, they're starting to come up. And in the um, summertime, you know, early summer, we bring these lovely bouquets of Lily of the Valley into the house and they are cardiotoxic and they're pretty potent. And even again, going back to that water in the vase, they're another one. So if you have a cat that loves to drink out of vase water, I know I sure do. They love that over their water bowls any day and they will push over the vase of you know, that I can't, I've long since been able to have bouquets in my house. That's a thing of the past right now, but you know, yeah. So cats nibbling on lilies, the valleys can be really problematic. Other plants like you, so this is more around the holidays when people are yes. bringing in you branches because it's an evergreen and the cats eating those kind of needle-like leaves of the you plant certainly can be a big deal. 
there's some plants that are really common house plants that I think kind of get a bit of a bad rap. So like philodendrons, for example, or pothos, pothos type plants, they're common in people's offices, common in people's homes. With COVID, actually, so many more people are focusing on house plants. So people are bringing stuff into their house. And those types of plants, they have a kind of an interesting self-defense mechanism. So when someone bites into the plant, it has these little cells in it full of little calcium type needles. And so the cat or whoever bites into the plant, these cells burst and they shoot these little shards into the mouth of whatever predator just bit into this plant. And it can cause some really dramatic hypersalivation. The cats are pawing at their mouths and it can be, it certainly can be painful and irritating. But thankfully, it's usually not something that's deadly. But I mention it because we get a ton of calls about these plants because they're just so common. People have yeah. them at home. Yep. What about the poinsettia issue? Because I think if you, you know, you ask the average pet owner to name a poisonous plant, a good number of them are going to say poinsettia. Absolutely. Yes, they are another one that kind of gets a little bit of bad rap. Yeah. So yeah. poinsettias, when you break open, you break apart a leaf of a stem of a poinsettia and you see that kind of milky white sap inside. That sap can be irritating to the stomach. And for people, for cats, it doesn't matter. It's again, an equal opportunist plant. They're irritating, they can cause vomiting, they can maybe cause diarrhea. I guess I could challenge you to find a plant that doesn't cause vomiting in a cat, but <laughs> right, you know, so <laughs> just because it causes vomiting doesn't say much. Cat but, grass. <laughs> Absolutely. Cactus always in my household anyways causes vomiting 100% of the time. <laughs> but they are, again, point that it's not that big of a deal. So if a cat gets a few bites of it, I rarely worry about it. If a cat ate a lot of it and potentially enough to cause so much vomiting and diarrhea, you were looking at dehydration, then maybe, yeah, yeah. I would worry. I, I would recommend hospitalization. Yeah. But there's no toxin per se in it. No, they're, they're, what's in there are called saponins and saponins are just by their nature. They're kind of a soap like material in some ways. Hence they, when you swallow a little bit of soap shampoo, you get some irritation in the mouth. You get some potentially some nausea, vomiting, same thing. Yeah. So what's the craziest toxin you've had in Ooh. the last couple of months? Oh, that's a good one, Yola. You know, I, I have to think, rethink because I was going to give you a D word example, but I will not. <laughs> <laughs> Although, well, I have to say it's kind of funny because in that case, not funny, not funny, right? Toxicologists have a really terrible and warped sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a, <laughs> it was a dog that ate a cardinal, a bird. And it made me think when I first heard that this animal got to ate a cardinal, I totally thought it was a cat. <laughs> that would be a very... <laughs> That would yeah. be the classic cardinal or classic feline toxin, right? Yes. But I think the one that really stands out to me recently was a cat. He was a large cat. His name was Guster. And Guster actually got into his pet owner's purse and ate a large muffin that had been made with cannabis butter. Ooh. I was going to ask you about CBD and hemp products. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. We get a ton of calls every day. There's not a day that goes by where we're not asked about cannabis. Yeah. 
and but yes so, and so, so guster had a pretty good afternoon i'm guessing after <laughs> that. Guster did. I mean, you know, sometimes we think cats will be to take a few bites of something guster really went to town he finished <laughs> he polished off and that was a big muffin this woman had <laughs> so polished off quite a bit of it he did have a very good afternoon <laughs> but thankfully guster did really well in the end yeah mm. so, you, you so must... how toxic is that yes good point it, you know, it depends. What we see with edibles, the thing with edibles is sometimes that they can actually pack a pretty high punch, especially of THC, because if you make edibles with THC butter, it's the butter where you've uh, concentrated the THC. And so depending on how much butter, you know, or if a cat got into the butter directly or the coconut oil directly and ate it, can get a really high dose. Um, we also see significant issues with cats that would get into what are called like marijuana concentrates. So like your, your waxes, that if, you're, if you've heard about dabbing, right? People take a dab of this like concentrated marijuana wax, they put it on a little electronic vaporizer. Oh yes. And they smoke it or they inhale it. Um, so cats getting into those types of concentrated products can be, that can be pretty bad. They would be very different from a cat getting into a cannabis plant itself because mm. the plant really doesn't have, it's not high concentrations of THC, but when you make, you make your butters, you make your waxes, things like that, then you're looking at you know, a product that has 70, 90% THC in it. But we, we there's, do- There's obviously a lot, of, sorry, Susan, go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say, we do see people, um, especially in the last few years, um, buying products that are meant to like help the cat with arthritis or, right. and they're not, right. and I'm guessing most of the time they're not actually going through veterinarians, right? It's, no. you know, depending on where you live, it can be pretty easy. So, Absolutely. so I'm, you know, I'm wondering if you see very, get very many calls from, from situations like that, where a person is, you know, like knowingly and deliberately given it because yes. it's been marketed in some way to them. We do. We get a lot of calls like that, actually, Susan, and for all sorts of species. And because there are people, yeah, people are buying products specifically marketed towards pets. Um, yeah. You can buy them online. So even if your yeah. state doesn't carry a lot of these, it's very easy to get, especially CBD products. So the thing about CBD products is, well, the, the most challenging thing right now is that these are not regulated products in the right. US. Right. And so anyone can make and sell a CBD product and the quality is all over the board. And some of these CBD products are either, you know, on, well, intentionally or unintentionally have a lot of THC in them. Mm -hmm. Some of them may again, probably intentionally have a lot of other illicit substances like synthetic cannabinoids. Um, and others, you know, it's been interesting is there's been lots of research done where you people buy uh, researchers off the shelf products and then they analyze them to see how much CBD is really in here. Is there any THC? Is, are there synthetic cannabinoids? Are there any other things like caffeine or antidepressants or other, you know, things that are not labeled especially? And the research is all over the board. It's really the wild west. So if you're going to buy a product like that, you really want to buy a, from a really reputable company, but that can be kind of hard to figure out who is that, of yeah. course. And right now, most veterinarians aren't selling products through their clinics, so that makes it even harder. But but some are starting to, and there are some companies out there that I think do pretty good work. Mm. Yeah, I hope that situation gets gets clarified. You know, it's it's awkward in Canada at least because there are no licensed products for pets, and so vets are really kind of caught between a rock and a hard place, right? Like where, 
we're not supposed to um, prescribe. But yet, of course, owners on their own, you know, as you said, you can buy them readily. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. I have one more question before our time is up again. Yes, um, sorry, that is no, no, that, that's okay because you had exactly the same question that I had, um, and that is, what is the most common iatrogenic iatrogenic drug that vets call about that they're worried about in cats? Good question. Oh yeah, you know this is where you you should have prepped me. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say there are two, but probably the one that that's called the most about with cats are NSAIDs. Yeah. And, you know, just given feline sensitivity to NSAIDs, you know, and we're such, Susan, you, I, I, you know this better than anyone, but how hard pain can be to treat in cats. And so thankfully now we have some NSAIDs in, on the market for cats that are actually pretty safe, but that's historically been such a challenge. And so it's, you know, and there's instances too where cats, especially with flavored and said tablets that are meant for a dog, cats eat those uh, because, hey, you know what, they're opportunists and they taste good or pet owners have administered them not really understanding that they shouldn't have. So that's probably the number one. The other one that we get called about though a lot are, uh, spot on flea and tick products that are concentrated pyrethroids and they have either been accidentally applied accidentally or intentionally applied to a cat now granted this wouldn't have been a veterinarian who applied it but it has happened at home or what's also kind of interesting is we've had several cases where the product has been applied to a dog in the house and the dog and the cat might sleep in the same bed maybe the dog the cat grooms the dog We've even had cases where the owners swear up and down that my cat and my dog never touch, but the dog lays in this bed overnight. And then during the day, the cat lays in the same bed <laughs> and the cat presents with very classic pyrethrin type signs. And so that, you know, the implication is maybe did that, you know, was there enough transfer of that pyrethroid to the fabric of the bed? Then the cat laying in that same spot actually got you know, enough that it, it groomed it off its own fur and, and therefore was exposed. So that's a whole other category we didn't really touch on very much. And, and that is dog products that are uh, either accidentally given to or ingested or deliberately, you know, somebody thinks, oh, I just break this in quarters and a quarter of it will be fine for my cat. That's all. That's a category that vets see often. Yes. And yeah, we absolutely. will have to talk about that the next time yeah. because time yeah. is up. I'm okay. sorry. Yes. I, have to, I, always have to be the, I always have to be the mean person that says that. So, yes. Oh. So, but it has been another wonderful episode, Anna. Thank you so much. Yes. I, it's just, it's just amazing. We could talk for hours about this. And, oh, and toxicology and is fascinating. And, and now I know what to say about the grape thing. So. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, exactly. I hope we'll see yeah, some real good, Ex more data exactly. on the grapes. Yeah. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Susan. You want to do the others or shall I do it? No, you're going to do it this time, Yola. Oh, I'm going to do it. Okay. So uh, if you like what you hear, this is the Per Podcast and you can find more information on perpodcast.net. And we have a social media handle at Per Podcast. And I'm forgetting something and I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> <laughs> see you know you train them for like a year and they're still not ready i tell no. you no yeah. it's more than two years almost so you know it's crazy yeah. uh, but 
Anna, uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. This has been fantastic. And we definitely are going to get you back because there are still so many questions. And we would like to ask our, our, our audience too. Yeah. Uh, send us some, uh, some questions that you have. We can then prep Anna a little better <laughs> so okay. she can look it up. Now it's all, you know, unprepped. And she did a great job, by the way. That's a, that's a great idea. But we'll, we'll solicit some listener queries for you. Yes. I would love that. Okay. Yes, Great let's idea. do it. And anybody that is interested in toxicology, where should they go? They should go to our website. It's puttpoisonhelpline.com. And there is tons of information devoted specifically to feline intoxication. So and if, if they're young vets that say, hey, that's oh, what yeah. I might want to do, where can they find information about how to become a veterinary toxicologist? Ah, then the American Board of Veterinary Toxicology. So ABVT, that is the specialty certification for veterinary toxicology. I'm the president-elect. I would be happy to talk to young vets who are interested in this, but we actually have a whole list of diplomats who would be very happy to talk to other vets who are interested so they can go to the abvt.org website and contact us through that and we'll follow and up we'll put a, a link to the pet poison helpline and abvt uh, in our show notes too for people so so anna once again thank you so much thank you thank you guys this has been great <laughs> Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yola Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVETSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 